I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. I think the fact that national commemoration of historical events tend to shy away from recognizing um, victimization makes it easy for narratives such as the Marcus Golden Age. It's, it's so easy to, to, to popularize because at the end of the day, the Philippine state has never really recognized um, points of weakness of the Philippines. And what I think the, the idea was always to package the Philippine past as a glorious past of strength, a glorious past of Filipino heroes, which I think led to Marcos himself being considered a hero in a lot of places, in a lot of um, circles among um, Filipinos. Right? It, it, I think it really sets the, sets the, page, sets the stage for, for that kind of memor- memorialization happening and the effects are very much felt nowadays. Hi, I am John Lee Candelaria. I am a, a, a research fellow at the Graduate School for Humanities and Social Sciences. Hiroshima University, where I also finished my PhD earlier this year. And I did my research on war memories in Southeast Asia, particularly focusing on uh, war memorials and um, war monuments in three uh, case studies from the region, the Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand. I am an incoming assistant professor at the same graduate school next spring. And I'm excited to do more research on war memories in the region. In his research on the Philippines, Lee Candelaria looks at the memory of three wars in the nation's past. The first is the war against Spain, or the Philippine Revolution. It was through this war, at the end of the 19th century, that Filipinos fought to secure their independence after some 400 years of Spanish rule. The second war is the Philippine-American War, This war began with the United States assisting Filipinos against the Spanish and ended with the Philippines being subjected to American control for the next half century. The third war is the war against Japan, the violent conflict and occupation during World War II which claimed over a million Filipino lives. Lee argues that how these wars are remembered is a result of larger political forces beyond the control of the Filipino people. If the Philippine Revolution looms largest in the national memory, while far less attention has been given to the Philippine-American War, it has much to do with the legacy of American rule. I think it's quite unfortunate how the memory of the Philippine-American War has been sidelined in Philippine history, even up until this day. And this is a major point that I was hoping to forward in my study. Of course, for Ileto, he traces it to, um, well, as a result of U.S. efforts to silence any mention of the event during the time of the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. So we call it in many names. Some call it colonization, annexation, occupation. Um, Of course, during the time that the Philippines was a, a, a U.S. colony, it did not benefit the U.S. to highlight to the Filipinos that, uh, hey, you know, um, we're, we're killing, we're massacring you guys wholesale. <laughs> um, estimates, I think, put it at around 20,000 combatants and uh, I think 300,000 or more 
civilians dying during the Philippine-American War more than the Philippine Revolution. And I think it's quite difficult to dismiss the effect of this on the communities, at least um, in the early 20th century. And mm, the Filipinos, particularly through U.S.-sanctioned schools, uh, they were taught that this war being fought by the Filipinos against the U.S., or what the U.S. calls the Philippine insurrection, um, they, they, they taught Filipinos that it's misguided, it's a waste of an effort, it's stupid, right? And at the same time, they also decided not to dwell so much on this, uh, this Philippine-American war or the Philippine insurrection. So uh, instead of focusing on this insurrection, uh, it was easier for the United States to refocus its attention on um, helping Filipinos uh, mythicize the Philippine Revolution and the war against Spain. And it's not like the Filipinos won't uh, be receptive because the revolution was pretty much a national event. And many of the Philippines' uh, heroes, uh, they were already, well, the revolutionary heroes from this revolution, they were already regarded as um, national heroes earlier on, like uh, Andres Bonifacio, the uh, he was the leader of the revolution, the one who founded the Katipunan or the association that was responsible for the revolution. And uh, another important personality is Jose Rizal, who himself was not really involved in the Philippine revolution, but he became the inspiration of the revolution. And because of that, he was executed. So I think I would really uh, attribute this phenomenon of forgetting or at least um I'm uh, U.S.-sponsored forgetting to the fact that the U.S. was trying to build this um, this model uh, nation or model colony in 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 the Far East, as they referred to us before, or in the Pacific. And to do that, uh, the U.S. needed to pacify the islands, and the memory of the Philippine-American War does not assist in that um, endeavor. And the U.S. what well, U.S. authorities are in a position of of controlling um, institutions, uh, and you mentioned they they're the ones who set up the, the education system, and that has maybe your own experience is is, is a reflection of that 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 has long term consequences, and they're the ones who can decide what gets commemorated, what what can get memorialized. So they're in a strong position to place emphasis on one thing or to de-emphasize s- something else. Exactly. Um, can, can you discuss some of the examples of how how this is done? How is more emphasis placed on on mm-hmm. one past more than another? Yes. So, I think the perfect example here is Jose Rizal, the the Philippines' um, national quote unquote hero, because there really isn't any legislation that puts him in that position as um, like the like the, the most uh, important hero of the Philippines, but. Uh, Jose Rizal, he um, he's an important figure for the revolution because he inspired the revolution through his writings, and because of these writings, he was uh, executed so well, by the Spanish authorities. And Rizal was easy to use as the U.S. Uh, poster boy because while he was a vocal critic of the Spaniards, uh, he also adopted, uh, he also advocated rather. Um, for uh, he advocated for education 
In fact, Philippine history scholars agree that Rizal was the perfect um, the, the perfect uh, model for pacifists because he could be a reminder for Filipinos that they could also achieve things not only through fighting or through violent means, but also through becoming educated like him. So it's 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 uh it's serving the 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 United States authorities this uh, dual um, benefit of promoting education at the same time informing the Filipinos that it's futile to to engage in violence. And this um US sponsorship of Jose Rizal took um form through uh the establishment of um uh, through through monuments and memorials, of course, um, the one in Loneta, um, Rizal's uh, statue there has become an, a cultural icon for the Philippines already, and of course, there's also Philippine education, the celebration of um, or the memorialization of Rizal through a national holiday every December 30, and all these actually enabled the Filipinos to really look up to Rizal and and make him a model. But at the same time, uh, during this time, not much is known about Rizal. Not, I think the focus has been, has always been about him not really becoming a fan or not supporting the revolution because he's anti-war. But at least now we know that that's not entirely true for Rizal. That he actually has a lot of uh, layers to his ideology. But during this time, with the limited information that the U.S. authorities had, they really thought that oh, we could really use Rizal as uh, our poster boy. So they didn't really completely understand all the dimensions to this person, right? Because he is somebody who still appeals to, to nationalists, to people who want to move in, a, in, in, a, in the direction of independence. Exactly, exactly. And of course, this also needs to be countered with the fact that the, at the time that Rizal was being elevated to this position in, in the Philippine national consciousness, there were also efforts by Filipinos themselves to elevate other heroes of the revolution. Like, I think in the same decade that the Rizal monument was built, a monument to Andres Bonifacio the leader of the Katipunan and the, the 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 leader of the revolution, it was also put up in in Manila. So, it's 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 like these two guys are are being um, regarded as the opposites of one another. If Rizal was pacifist, Bonifacio was the violent one, and yet we see Filipinos uh, also venerating Andres Bonifacio. So, um, I I would disagree to. Yeah, I think I have to disagree when when people say that Rizal was just the U.S. poster boy for for pacifism. Um, in fact, there, there's a lot of layers to Rizal, as I've mentioned before. But he could fit whatever mold that we want him to fit, because at some point he was also able able to inspire the revolution itself, right? Hmm. One of the ideas that's come up uh, in several other. Uh, episodes is if you want to diminish the the significance of a memory uh, you can you can merge it with other memories you can subsume it in in a larger history and this is something that you mentioned uh is the case with uh, with uh how you promote the forgetting of the of the of the um, philippine american war could you discuss this a little yeah 
in, in my study, it was quite difficult to prove how forgetting occurs because, you know, as they say, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, right? So I thought, yeah, the only indication that the United States was sponsoring this forgetting of the Philippine-American War was through efforts to downplay it. And an example of this is Memorial Day. Um, this is the only commemoration that I could connect to the Philippine-American War. And this was a practice when the Philippines was still a U.S. colony. Nowadays, we don't do this anymore. Um, it's a practice that originated in the U.S. to honor uh, fallen U.S. soldiers. And the fact that this was celebrated in the Philippines during the U.S. annexation means that the United States recognizes that there were deaths of U.S. soldiers, but they do not recognize the death of Filipino combatants. And I think more importantly, Memorial Day recognizes all fallen U.S. soldiers. So there's this mixing of memory, as I call it in my study, and it's quite suspect. But I think the best example of this politics of forgetting is this mausoleum in the Manila North Cemetery uh, in the Philippines. This, this is the mausoleum of the veterans of the revolution, which was built under the U.S. Um, under U.S. auspices upon um, the lobbying of the veterans of the Philippine Revolution themselves. And many of those who fought against Spain also fought the, U the U.S. So it, it was quite interesting that some veterans interred in the mausoleum were fighters of both wars, of both the Philippine Revolution and the Philippine-American War. And when I found this out, I thought, how was this possible under, uh, under the USI? And an important proof of the politics of forgetting in this mausoleum is uh, written on its facade um, as the years 1896 and 1902 are carved in Roman numerals outside. And 1896, of course, was the start of the Philippine Revolution, and 1902 was the end of the Philippine-American War. Although, of course, for many Filipino scholars, they dispute that end. Uh, for them, the war ended much later, I think 1913. But for me, indicating that time span, 1896 to 1902, could only manifest how the Philippine-American War was subsumed as part of an or as part of or as an extension of the Philippine Revolution. And the Filipinos lobbying for the building must have felt that the U.S. victory against the Filipino resistance was conclusive enough to end the revolution. And, and they saw the declaration by the U.S. of the end of the Philippine insurrection or the Philippine-American War in 1902 as irrefutable. Um, these years could also indicate that there was no distinction between the nature of the revolution before and after the U.S. came in. And... Another probable explanation is that maybe the, the lobbyists, they sought to curry favor, favor and patronage from the United States since they could ask for benefits for the veterans. At the end of the day, this recognition of the end of the revolution in 1902 was, in, in many ways, it was an acceptance that the revolution was indeed defeated and had ended. And we really see this, the way that one memory is subsumed by another bigger memory. So in effect, it has the effect of uh, weakening that other memory. And I call that the dilution of the memory of the Philippine-American War as an extension or conclusion of the Philippine Revolution.
But so you mentioned that, well, one of the reasons for Filipinos to go along with this is that they, they need support, right? They, they need benefits. Uh, that could have been a reason, right? So you didn't run across any examples of, of, of counter memories or people trying to keep alive the memory of the, those who, who died uh, fighting against Americans in other ways, right? They just, uh, there, are no, there are no examples anywhere, I wonder. Since I was really focusing on, on commemoration at the level of the state, I did not really look in look much into local um or, or other skills of memorialization. Um but there are um particularly efforts from, from local governments, for example, um to, to commemorate aspects of the Philippine American War. Like if um if I could name one in San Mateo in Rizal, my, my own hometown, uh where one of the one of the more important events of the Philippine American War happened, and I think it was also where one U.S. general was killed in in battle. So that was a source of pride for for the locals. So there is, of course, this level of memorialization at the local level. But I think what's more puzzling for me is why is it that the state refuses to 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 sanction or to support or to sponsor? these memories at the national level during this period. And I think there, uh, and I've mentioned this in my study that this international um, connections or relationships between the U S and the Philippines has also something to do with it because the Philippines needed the U S for support, especially after the war. And they cannot continue um, making a big deal about the Philippine American war if they want to secure reparations um, and this also is um, applies to the Philippines' relationship with Japan uh, during this time. Okay, so here we're moving on to the case of Japan. So you you uh, discuss uh, really three wars of significance: uh, the 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 Philippine American War that's de-emphasized, the Philippine Revolution that's that's uh, made a centerpiece of, of, of the national story, and then the um, uh, war against. Japan, the Pacific War, uh, and could you discuss a little bit how just how devastating was that conflict for the Philippines? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, World War II was devastating for Filipinos. I mean, even with COVID nineteen, uh, the war is still the single most devastating event in Philippine history that resulted in more than a million deaths. So, so that's quite a lot for for the Philippines during that time, and. The remembrance of World War II in the Philippines, or as I call it in my study, the Pacific War, just to differentiate it from World War II also happening in Europe during this time, uh, the remembrance is present, especially in areas such as uh, Bataan and Corregidor, um, where the fiercest battles of the war happen. It's pronounced, yes, but I think the memorialization of the Philippine Revolution uh, was, yeah, it really is and remains to be the centerpiece of um, the commemoration of the Philippine state right? more than any other war. Like for example, um, after World War II, there were a lot of commemorative events centering on events of the Philippine Revolution. Like in 1961, there was a lot of fanfare surrounding uh, the celebration of the birth centenary of Jose Rizal. And then in uh, 1998, there was also a lot of some celebration, a bigger celebration, um, focusing on the 100-year anniversary of the Philippine Revolution. So, And 
I don't remember any national commemorative event related to World War II that had the same level of celebration. Although, of course, we are yet to get to 100 years after 1941 or 1945. But I'm just thinking, but this war, World War II or the Pacific War, was more devastating than any other war. Um, But there are memorials built um, to honor World War II in the Philippines, uh, particularly in Bataan and Corregidor, as I mentioned. And I noticed in my analysis of these memorials that the focus has strongly been uh, on the military aspect of the war. It has always been about the sacrifice of soldiers, the love of country, the battle for peace, uh, and and so on. So there's really no mention of the victims of the war, which is particularly weird because the civilian victims outnumber the the combatants who died during the war by 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 a mile. So that's an interesting phenomenon for me. So if the emphasis is placed on on the military. Uh, in terms of lives lost, in terms of the sacrifices made, um, you mentioned that there there are political imperatives for that. You talk uh, to uh, to a great extent about Ferdinand Marcos in particular. How how does memorializing the, the Pacific War serve his own interests? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ferdinand Marcos had this affinity for World War II because he claimed to be the Philippines' most decorated war hero. He talked of his own personal heroics, this uh, guerrilla unit that he said he established, and so on. He, he had a, he had a lot of big bold claims surrounding his own participation um, during World War II in the Philippines, and they they have all been proven to be fake later on. But when he became president in 1965, he really held on to this narrative of him being a war hero, and. Uh, if we're going to look at former Philippine presidents after the war, this war participation narrative or this war hero narrative has been used by a lot of Filipino politicians because they could tell the people that, look at me, I, I readily gave up my life for for you guys during the war and I'm still here willing to serve you. And Marcos really used the same narrative. And he went further because when he became president in 1965, he took advantage of his position to also lead the country's World War II or Pacific War commemoration through the building of the Shrine of Valor, or we call it in Filipino, Dambana ng Kagitingan, which is um, located in Mount Samat, Bataan. It's uh, a memorial. It's a very interesting memorial because it's a gigantic cross. It's one of the biggest memorial crosses in the world. Um, and uh, it, it, it faces Corregidor, the other island where another memorial was put up. Um, interestingly, Marcos was very present in, in this memorial in Bataan, in Mount Samat, because he himself conceptualized this idea of creating an altar, like a Catholic altar. Right? During this time, the Philippines is still largely... Catholic, although there's no national religion. But Marcos used this imagery of the cross as symbolizing sacrifice, right? um, the, willing, the willingness to give up one's life for, for the country. And he also had a lot of his, um, a lot of his quotations are strewn in the side. Uh, it really is, in, in many ways, an ode to his memory of the Battle of Bataan and the fall of Bataan, which are important markers 
important markers of World War II. He never actually buries himself there like a, or has himself buried there like Franco in Spain. Yeah. 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 No. Um, I think he, to some extent, he thought maybe he could be buried there because he was really following the, the model of the, the this, um, I've, I've forgotten the title. It's like, um, Valley of the Fallen in, in, in Spain. Um, yeah, but in another, I think he was also the one who established the, not, not really him, but after World War II, the, what we call this, the Libingan ng mga bayani or the Heroes Cemetery was also established to to be the final resting place of a lot of Filipino heroes and Philippine presidents. And there was a lot of controversy because his remains, Marcos's remains were moved to the to the to the heroes cemetery in 2016. So yeah, he's not buried in Mount Samat, but he is in the heroes cemetery. So we still see this contestation of memory still very present up up until this day. Hmm. And one of the points that you make throughout is that there are these larger forces at work. That it's not just if 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 um, memory work is is at play it's not just the interests of of uh, someone like marcos that there are larger a larger context was, and you mentioned the cold war uh figures prominently into how the pacific war is remembered um and and there's the both in the there's a, the interest of the philippines and the the american authorities kind of dovetail in, in this respect um and could you could you discuss this a little bit sure um it's, I think it's undeniable that the war memorialization landscape of the Philippines pretty much occurred against the backdrop of the Cold War. And during this time, the Philippine government was a close ally of the United States. And thus, they, they parroted strong anti-communist sentiments. For example, the choice of venerating Bataan and Corregidor achieved several international relations goals for the Philippines. First, it highlighted the special relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines, which materialized in commemorating two sites where the narrative of U.S.-Filipino friendship is most prominent, right? It's like uh, two brothers uh, together at arms against a common enemy. And then the second point is that um, by highlighting the military aspect of the war, they are the Philippine state was promoting uh, the military ideals of duty and loyalty to the country, which is in a way um, a contrast to the perception of the communist movement as a threat to the integrity of the state. So combined, the memorialization of World War II in the Philippines worked to achieve a foreign policy goal, which is to be closer to the United States, and a propaganda line that could support the anti-communist programs of the government and perhaps the U.S. in the entire region. And interestingly, I saw this also in the case of Thailand and Singapore to a certain extent. Um, But I think... And a very important example of this Cold War rhetoric making its way into the memorials is through the Pacific War Memorial in Corregidor, which was built parallel to the Shrine of Valor in Mount Samat. If the Shrine of Valor in Mount Samat is the Philippines' main war memorial, then the U.S. uh, built uh, its own in in Corregidor through, of course, the efforts of the U.S. and U.S. money. It's a memorial complex composed of several structures like a domed memorial hall, an eternal flame structure, and so on. But what's most noticeable is that 
the language of these structures speaks of a somewhat generic message relating to war. It, it follows and recalls a memorialization tradition of the United States, but in terms of motives, the United States is absent. Although it was also pointed out by some scholars that Filipino designs and motives were also absent in this Pacific War Memorial. I think the architectural language was um, made to be universal so that uh, they could really relate to any other memorials found in the rest of the world. And it was just there to send a message of um, unity coming together in, in, in face of threats to national or regional stability like communism. So I really see that the Cold War shaped the memory of war memorialization, particularly of, the, of World War II in, in the Philippines and perhaps in the region as well. Okay. So Marcos eventually is toppled from power in a people's revolution and the political context changes dramatically. And, and in what ways does that open up ways of remembering the past? The, the, the Edsa revolution that was responsible for the, um, of, for Marcos being thrown out um, also ushered in uh, a new democratic government that is now more open to looking back at the past. Uh, and I think this also marked the establishment of a lot of um, memorial shrines, a lot of um, memorial sites for many Philippine historical events. And those that center on the Pacific War or World War II, um, one site stands out for me. This is the Kapas Prisoner of War Memorial Shrine, which is in itself uh, a departure in the memory politics of war in the Philippines because for the first time, National War Commemoration recognized the memory of the prisoners of war or those U.S. and Filipino soldiers who were taken as prisoners by Japan and were forced to march what has been dubbed the Death March. So compared to earlier sites like Corregidor in Bataan, what, which focused on the gallantry of manly soldiers and their altruistic sacrifice, this memorial in Capas is a departure from that. This happened in the 90s, I believe, um, and perhaps the environment has become really more open to discussing more of the horrors of World War II. So even though it's still not focused on victims, right, or, or civilian victims, I think for me it's already a win that in the 90s, the, uh, the prisoners of war perhaps are not very, um, not, I mean, I think depicting soldiers as weak, it's it's not a good not a good point, but it's not really the aim of a lot of war memorialization practices in the world, particularly those that center on soldiers. So for me, this is a very important um, point in, in, in Philippine war memory landscape. And you mentioned this, this uh, civilian experience. It does eventually get memorialized, but in a very short lived way. Uh, uh, And this is the case of, of, an, an attempt to memorialize um, the Filipina comfort women. I think when we talk about civilians figuring into the memorialization landscape of the Philippines, um, it they, they don't. They're practically missing. It's always at the level of um, civilian groups, NGOs, 
um, and other interest groups within society outside the state that have championed the building of monuments and memorials that remember ordinary victims that have yet to figure in state-sponsored memorials. So you mentioned the Filipina Comfort Women, but uh, perhaps I can also talk about the Memorare Manila 1945 Memorial, which was erected in Intramuros, Manila in 1995. Again, in the 90s, I think people are quite more... um, uh, They're they're not really much afraid of how the Philippine state would, would see it. But during this time, Japan was also quite more open to recognizing its culpability during the war so for them for i think the the establishment or i think the what they call the inauguration of the memorare manila 1945 memorial a memorial specifically for civilian victims japan was present there through the japanese um through the through, through the japanese ambassador who who attended the inauguration and that uh, speaks a lot about how everybody's more open in discussing the, the more difficult aspects of the war. But while it seems that at present, it's quite more open to discuss um, this historical past, this uh, war past, I think deep down there are issues that remain delicate. And you mentioned the, the Filipina comfort women statue and the issue of the comfort women in, in general. Uh, I think this indicates that there is still there's still much reconciliation that needs to be done. The Japan still needs to apologize. But at the same time, the Philippine state must also recognize the plight of ordinary citizens, such as uh, the comfort women. Some of them are still alive. Um, During the war, these comfort women were forced into being sex slaves by the Imperial Japanese Army, and they remain a a contentious, divisive topic to this day. In fact, in 2017, uh, I call this like maybe the the blip, the uh, or, or 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 I think this is a what they call this uh, an aberration because in 2017 a memorial to the Filipina comfort women was installed in Rojas Boulevard in Manila. It's near the Japanese embassy, and interestingly, it was installed um, by the Manila by the Manila City government and the National Historical Commission of the Philippines. So there's state sponsorship in this memorial. And it featured a grieving, blindfolded uh, Filipina woman dressed in the traditional Filipina, Filipiniana attire. And the installation drew urgent responses from the Philippine Department of Foreign Affairs. They said they were not informed. And also from the Japanese embassy, who also said that they were not informed. And the statue was short-lived. It was only after, I think it was just four months, that um, the Department of Public Works and Highways of the Philippine State removed the statue, citing a drainage improvement project in the area. But the statue is now nowhere to be found. Um, And I think during this time, Duterte, the, the president at that time was still Duterte, he stressed that the statue could be placed somewhere else. And he said that it's not the policy of his government to antagonize other nations, which for me is indicative of the fact that war remains constrained by the international dimensions of its commemoration and the perceived benefit to the state when memories that provoke and upset are silenced instead of remembered. And this really shows, particularly in this case of the Filipino Comfort Women statue. But do you feel like his administration, his regime, the there was more concern with maintaining good relations uh, with Japan than um, 
doing justice to to the past and the, the experiences of, of 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 the Filipino people. Yes, well, the Philippines' number one trading partner and um, the biggest source of development assistance is Japan, um, more than the U.S., more than China. So it is important for the Philippine government not to slight Japan because and and they know they they are aware that Japan is still particularly sensitive about about the comfort women issue um so yeah i think it there's really this constraint by this international dimension when it comes to remembering the war even though we are like 70 years away from from that event so was there was there a reaction to that to the removal of that statue after such a short period of time did um uh did uh, did it provoke people uh, in any way yes there was indignation from a lot of um groups that particularly those the um, those uh particularly groups that champion women's rights for example um there was also some i think there was motions to to investigate it at the level of the Philippine Senate what happened to the statue but we, i think we all know how 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 these um episodes of controversy goes like after a while it dies down and people are okay with it or they don't really care about it anymore because there are bigger issues in in the, in the conversation now i i can't resist getting your take on this because i in an earlier but given that you're you're in in japan and in hiroshima um one of the earlier episodes I featured Akiko Takanaka and uh, how Japan remembers the Asia Pacific war. And she has a section in her book where she talks about the whole peace, um, uh, the memory culture and uh, all the museums that get created in Japan, especially places that were bombed. Uh, uh, and, uh, and she stresses, well, I mean, it's a lot easier to emphasize a past uh, when you're remembering yourself as a victim than as a perpetrator. But I would think in the case of the Philippines, you would think that if, if it would be even easier to try to uh, uh, emphasize a memory of victimization um, and, and suffering and, and uh, 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 but there's nothing, uh, there's nothing similar to, to what you see in Japan. Yes. Yeah. I think, it really does not benefit the Philippines to to capitalize on its victimization during the war. Uh, unlike countries, for example, like Korea, which is quite powerful enough to really stand up to Japan and, and demand for uh, demand for for stuff that does, that are still not settled from that period from their period of colonization right but for the philippines a particularly weak country in terms of um leverage against the us or japan for example it really is not strong enough to to challenge the us or to challenge japan about this memory although of course again we see we see another important um example of an aberration in in in, in filipino memorialization culture when um, at least at the level of the state, when Duterte was quite vocal against the U.S. and demanded for some um, demanded for the repatriation of some relics from the Philippine-American War to be returned to the Philippines, um, and 
that time I realized that Duterte was using war memories to his own advantage. He was using the memory of the Philippine-American War to gain um, to gain patronage here in the Philippines and to challenge the U.S. to give more aid or to give more um, uh, to give more maybe uh, more uh, to, to focus more in the Philippines. Um, so he's he, he's he's using war memories again to achieve international aims and. Unfortunately, for the Philippines, if it will focus on the victimization narrative against Japan, then it might not be able to get what it needs or what it wants to get because we see the example of how, for example, trade has become problematic between Korea and Japan during periods when Koreans were quite adamant about some issues unsettled from their colonization experience. So there really is this um, international dimension which also dictates what things are remembered and what things are forgotten. I believe if the Philippines gets to a point where it's a more powerful nation, then perhaps it can demand... You have to have the economic standing maybe to have a sense of outrage and to make demands about, about the past. Exactly. But that's the thing about the past. It's it's there anytime you need it. So when the time comes that the Philippines is maybe um, it's not very much dependent on aid coming from Japan, then maybe um, it can just use up its war memory hidden somewhere and just say that, look, there's still justice to be served here. And, you know, yeah. So I'm I'm curious. I know this is a departure from your from your uh, dissertation, your research, but uh, I'm I'm really curious. I mean, having lived through the 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 downfall of of uh, Ferdinand Marcos Senior and now his son uh, is is uh, in power, uh, there have been a, there's been a lot written about um, nostalgia for that past. I mean, do you see his son as benefiting from nostalgia or as having had to? help with a forgetting of, of the past or i mean he he must have built on his 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 father's uh the memory of his father in a lot of respects i mean how, how does how does memory or nostalgia the past figure into his his rise to to power yeah it really plays a, um, a prominent role in the restoration of the marcuses in philippine politics but while a lot of people would like they'd like to focus on Marcos becoming president now for me this goes way back um i think it was early 2000s when Marcos um, Ferdinand Marcos uh, junior and Amy Marcos um his sister started to um come back in philippine politics by running for um, lower positions, lower national positions like um, governor of Ilocos Norte or Philipp- um, positions for at, at the Philippine Congress, like in the House of Representatives, and then um, in the Senate, where both also became senators. And throughout this entire time, the Marcoses have been known for their efforts to revise history or to distort history. And to do that, they needed to... Um, popularize their own narrative of what happened during martial law in the Philippines. This was a period of some 20 years when the Philippines was under um, the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. And we saw a lot of human rights abuses. We saw a lot of corruption. Um, We saw a lot of crony capitalism and how a lot of individuals, political or not, 
but the political and economic elite all benefited and pocketed um, money from from the Philippines um, coffers. And the reason why we associate historical revisionism to the Marcoses, and maybe the reason why uh, the Filipino people are quite vulnerable to disinformation and to these um, to, to believing alternate martial law narratives has something to do with memory. Um, yeah, it has something to do with how memory or history has been taught also. Like, for example, this focus on the Philippine Revolution and Philippine history textbooks does not give enough attention to events during the 20th century. Um, our textbooks are really a lot, majority of its pages to events of the Philippine Revolution to a point that the discussion on World War II is going to be just like three pages and then the Marcus years, another five pages perhaps. So there really isn't enough attention um, in, in, in Filipino text history textbooks that um, adequately confronts Marcus's lies and atrocities, which of course allowed the, the same false memories to, to proliferate. And then another factor is that the Philippines justice system failed to make the Marcoses accountable and thought that it's just going to be okay, um, even if uh, we don't recover a lot of the money that has gone to the Swiss bank accounts of the Marcoses. And this ill-gotten wealth is pretty much still there. And a lot of scholars even suspect that the money that was used to promote this narrative of the past, this false narrative, is well actually came from the same ill-gotten wealth by the Marcuses. And then perhaps um, another factor is that although the academe is quite open already to, to these um, false narratives, it did little to influence the public discourse, which provided an avenue for Marcus to um, promote a clean image um, and to sustain the, the 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 restoration of the Marcus family, and also help validate uh, the Marcus's supporters' nostalgia for the dictatorship. You know, it's so easy to remember a time when uh, a, a kilo of rice is just this much, or a bottle of Coca Cola is this much, and these people, ill-informed, of course. Um, popularized the, these notions of uh, prices were a lot, life was a lot better during that time. So maybe the narrative of Marcos being a dictator was false. Uh, it provided them more reasons to defend and to protect the Marcoses against critics. And yeah, right now we have another Marcos president. So, I mean, was that the revisionist history that you, you play down the abuses of power and you stress how times were better? I mean, how how is it that 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 he and his sister um, try to rewrite the past? Yes, um, exactly that. Uh, I think the fact that national commemoration of historical events tend to shy away from recognizing um, victimization makes it easy for narratives such as the Marcus Golden Age. Uh, it's it's so easy to 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 popularize because at the end of the day the philippine state has never really recognized um points of weakness of the philippines and 
what I think that the idea was always to package the Philippine past as a glorious past of strength, a glorious past of Filipino heroes, which I think led to Marcos himself being considered a hero in a lot of places, in a lot of um, circles among um, Filipinos. Right? It's, it's, I think it really sets the, sets the page, sets the stage for, for that kind of memor- memorialization happening and the effects are very much felt nowadays. That's interesting. So maybe if there was a more honest accounting of, of or at least a, an effort to deal with the full range of memories and the complexity of the past, that it could have been harder to 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 craft that revisionist history. Yeah, and of course it comes in um, a lot of uh, factors, right? But um, it, of course, education needs to be at the same page. We also need to have historians, public history, um, a historical commemoration also needs to be in the same page. And then the academes' um, influence in public discourse should also be stronger, um, particularly in light of um, new technologies such as Facebook, social media, the proliferation of historical distortion, historical revisionism, fake news even, uh, all assisted in, in this. And if you have uh, a Filipino public which has been well-primed to just receive um, these information and accept them as true, yeah, I think it really set the stage for the Marcoses to return in Philippine politics. And memory really has a lot to deal with it. I think you're answering my last question, Lee. What inspired your podcast <laughs> all of this, uh, yeah. promoting this this awareness of history and grounding people maybe in a way that they haven't before, giving them this uh, understanding that uh, that they don't really get uh, from from the school system or places where they should get it. Exactly. They are going to get it somewhere else. And YouTube, for example, has been uh, a very important uh place where fake news and fake historical narratives proliferated. And what we do in podcasts, uh, which is uh, a portmanteau of podcast and kasaysayan, uh, which is history in Filipino, what we're trying to do is trying to counter this with information and analysis coming from actual historians. Um, and I think we are making, um, it's, it's a small contribution, but at least it's there. Like the Filipinos, when they go online, hopefully can, they can stumble upon it and try to give it a listen and maybe become an alternative source of information aside from the more popular platforms online where they get their daily disinformation. John Lee Candelaria is a research fellow at the Graduate School for Humanities and Social Sciences at Hiroshima University, where he recently completed his doctorate. His dissertation is titled States and Stones, War Memorialization and Nation Building in 20th Century Southeast Asia. He is also one of the hosts of Podcasts, spelled P-O-D-K-A-S, a podcast featuring conversations on Philippine history, politics, and society. Lee, thank you for taking time for this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Thank you also for the invitation. Next month, we'll return to Turkey. We'll hear from Aaron Yetkin from Koblenz University in Germany about his recent book on Kurdish memories of the Armenian genocide. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for listening to Realms of Memory.